ready? Welcome back to Here on the Hill, a podcast from Montgomery Bell Academy in Nashville, Tennessee. In this episode, we're celebrating National Poetry Month. First, we'll hear some thoughts on reading and teaching poetry from Mr. Haywood Moxley, the chair of MBA's English department. And then we'll hear an original poem by student author Roman Urbanzik. So let's begin by hearing what Mr. Moxley had to say in his interview with MBA librarian Jane McMahon. Good morning, Mr. Moxley, and thank you for talking about poetry with us this month. Um, First off, uh, what do you remember about studying poetry back when you were a student? Well, when I was in high school, uh, back in the, you know, the 1970s, you know, I, we didn't study a lot of poetry. I, I think poetry, in many ways, in America especially, had become, um, you know, so informal, full of free verse, that uh, there was, uh, you know, the, the major poets that you would study, be it a Robert Frost or someone like that, they were still studied. But in my high school, we did not have a strong poetry curriculum. Um, you know, we had a few, few poets here and there, but I don't remember studying much poetry. It was not a... Um, so I... When I was a kid, you know, especially all the way, I would say, through my teen years, I just didn't read much poetry at all. Um, and I, I do kind of blame that on our curriculum for not, you know, being a stronger curriculum. Um, so I, I came to poetry in a much different way than probably most English majors or most English teachers. And, 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 and certainly most people like me now who absolutely love poetry. And, and I still, you know, read it almost daily. I'm still buying books of poetry. And I... I have the Norton anthology of uh, modern poetry by my bedside. I always it's been there for you know thirty years. You know when I was I, when I was a kid, I just wasn't inspired to love poetry because um, I didn't have a teacher who really you know led me down that down, down that path. I had some good teachers in other other classes, so I came to poetry in a much different way. Well, that's fascinating. What you said about not studying much poetry in your school curriculum. That's kind of an interesting thing to hear because I feel like a long time ago, and now I mean a long, long time ago, it seems like poetry was considered the only thing worth studying um, in terms of the novel not really being considered kind of like a high literary form. And um, I guess now the novel really, um, in some cases, dominates English curriculum. But, you know, once upon a time, it would have been only been like Shakespeare and Milton and novels would have been cons- would have been considered kind of a lower form of, of reading or not where they have studied. But so that's interesting. Yeah. Well, no doubt the, you know, the, um, the poem in the early 20th century was quickly becoming a museum piece. Uh, and then, you know, modern poets like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and, and, uh, and others, of course, and, you know, one of my favorites is... E.E. Cummings, they had to you know, kind of blow up poetry in, in, in essence, the old traditional line and, um, and, and reinvent it to fit a modern world, which is far more, um, I think, interested in image, you know, and, and, and say in the rising of photography and, um, and film and so forth. And so the, the poem, which had been the only sort of popular game in town for hundreds of years, you know, in terms of literary pursuits, all of a sudden, it was being relegated to the back bench, and um, 
um, it was quickly just going to become a museum piece. And and so I think that's what you know we had. I think for a, a many decades, you know, all the way until the 1970s, and when I was a, in high school, when poetry was just studied as something from the past. And modern poets were hard to teach to high school kids. They still are really hard to teach. I love modern poetry, but it's very difficult to teach it to a young person uh, who doesn't understand, it, you know, the, the roots of poetry and the, the forms of, 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 of poetic meter, etc. It's to, you know, the, the rules and the standards for prosody and so forth. But um, so, you know, when the 1970s, when I was beginning to get interested in, in writing, um, First, first of all, I was a scientific-minded kid. I was a math. I love math. I love science. I was going to go to Georgia Tech to be an engineer. The last moment, I decided against it and um, it took a kind of a gap year. Although I did go to college in a small school in Augusta, Georgia, for a year. And uh, there, I just kind of decided I, I wanted to be a, a geologist. So I went to school in Montana State. And there, while I was studying geology, I took, uh, as one was was wont to do back then with the liberal arts curriculum, I took a couple of humanities classes because I just had to check that off the box. And I took one in modern drama, and I took one in the modern novel. And I liked reading novels when I was a kid, but you got to remember, in the 1970s, fiction had been, was dominated by, I would say, satire, you know, because the Vietnam War had come to this, you know, terrible close, and you had these brilliant writers like Kurt Vonnegut and Richard Brodigan and others, others who were, uh, who you know, all they could do is really think about was just how, um, I would say, uh, destructive the human race was. And so they began to write these wonderfully satirical, funny, you know, short, but um, fascinating, you know, novels about, you know, society. And I, I got interested in reading that stuff. Uh, so I read like crazy when I was in uh, my late teens. Mostly it was writers like a Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, I just love Kurt Vonnegut. And then, of course, from Vonnegut, I got interested in reading Mark Twain. I went back and just absorbed everything I could by Mark Twain, um, mainly because I think um, as, a, as a child of the '70s, uh, not everybody was like me, but as a child of the '70s, you know, I was, I was um, in many ways just questioning everything about the status quo, you know, because uh, so much had come unraveled um, after you know, the 1950s in our in our culture. And um, so anyway, when I when I went off to study geology at Montana State. I took this class in modern drama and modern fiction, uh, the modern novel. Uh, I fell in love with uh, these these fascinating, you know, early 20th century kind of absurd writers, writers uh, who are sort of existential writers. And um, I went from reading some fairly simple novels, the satirical stories you could really, you know, I think wrap your your mind around pretty easily and were funny, to reading guys like Albert Camus, The Stranger. Just uh, it was a book that just kind of floored me. And uh, the same with The Plague. It's kind of interesting. You wrote this brilliant novel called The Plague, which absolutely is completely relevant right now because it is about exactly what's going on today in, about, in various you know, parts of our world, especially towns that have really had to truly lock down, like in New York. But anyway, I was fascinated by these writers. And as you can tell, most of these writers, it's modern dramatists too, like Bertolt Brecht and um, um, you know, Samuel Beckett and others. They're, they're very rational writers. They're very scientific-minded writers, actually. Many of them are, uh, they, their art it tends to follow many of the uh, scientific and sort of industrial inventions 
you know, that have changed culture in the last 150 years. So I was not much into poetry at all, Jane. I just, just didn't really, I didn't know how to even read it. And I didn't know how to, no one taught me how to read poetry. And so um, finally, when I was in grad school, um, I took a class on Yeats, and that just absolutely changed my life. Um, and really, probably because when you study Yeats, you come at it warmly from this uh, this this, this uh, point of view of, of his theory of history. Yeats had this bizarre theory of history about the widening gyres, this sort of notion that history is about on a 2,000-year sort of cycle. And every 2,000 years, something comes up that changes our, our mythology, our, the way we sort of, you know, the way we think. So very, very, again, I think, rational way of looking at, 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 a, at something like poetry, but got me fascinated. So I began, began to read Yeats from this point of view of his study of, of his vision of history. Um, and then, then I just began to fall in love with his words. And then I just began to fall in love with um, just the, the beauty of, of poetry and the emotions of poetry. So I didn't come to poetry the way most people do from an, an emotional side. I came to poetry from the other side, from really a, a rational, you know, reasonable sort of um, um, I would say a uh, way of thinking and so to this, to this day I still I tell my students this all the time a poem is a puzzle um, I mean it's a, it's a wonderful puzzle it's a beautiful puzzle and you have to solve it when you when you read a metaphor you have to you have to break it down you have to unpack it just the way you would a riddle or just the way you would just try to figure out a formula you know if you're just learning the quadratic equation you have to try to get your minds around that and and, and practice it and problems or whatever to understand it. And I think a poem is the same. It's just a puzzle. When you think of a line like in the middle of um, um, the To His Coy Mistress by Marvell, um, the, the middle of it when he says, but at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. And yonder all the forest lie deserts of vast eternity. Um, in the middle of this poem, all of a sudden he throws out this little riddle on how is you know, time like a winged chariot. Well, obviously, you have to do a little research to figure out what that means because, you know, the, the, that reference to Greek mythology with uh, Apollo and his riding his chariot across the sky or whatever to, to create the sun, the sun's path. But, you know, you have to go back and break that down. And yonder lie before us deserts of vast eternity. You know, you just, you, you, um, you have to think about that almost rationally to understand that. Yet it's a beautifully emotional line. It's in the middle of a love poem. Um, so I, I um, that's the way I kind of came to poetry was that it was I saw it as kind of a puzzle, um, and some poems are very rational. Like Shakespeare is incredibly rational. Shakespeare is, is the most rational of all poets. I mean, everything you read by Shakespeare, you can you have to just break it down, um, you know, practically on, on paper when you start thinking about a line like "Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more, more temperate." Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. The summer's lease hath all too short a day. I mean, you have to think about that. You know, it's you have to think about what this what this poet is, what the speaker of the poem is trying to say to you know his lover. And shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Well, okay, maybe so. Sure, do it. Sounds like a great idea. Ah, but thou art more lovely. Oh, oh, okay. So I'm better looking than that. So it's 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 a it's a it's a thought, it's a thinking kind of thing. You know, um, a lot of modern poetry 
in my opinion, is not quite that way. You know, you read, um, you know, poets like, say, a Whitman, uh, you know, who is I absolutely love Whitman, and Whitman's a, a poet that blew my mind because he he wasn't he he was a little different from these other poets, who I think just give you a series of riddles and, and metaphors and synecdoche and metonymy and these other rhetorical devices that you kind of have to solve to figure out what the meaning is underneath them, right? It's always the subtext, right? It's always the subtext. But Whitman comes along in the 1850s and he, he ends, kind of ends subtext. He puts an end to that. Um, not all of his poems, but the great poem, Song of Myself, which is the one poem that um, I think changed the way that I teach and the way that I see poetry. So, you know, I can ramble on forever, obviously, about this. But um, I just, you know, when I think about my own path towards loving poetry, it was, it was, it was kind of long, and it was uh, definitely winding. And I didn't come to love poetry until I was in my early 20s. And it was because of Yeats. And the way into Yeats was through this theory of history that he, he wrote really into his poems. And then I just came to appreciate his brilliance as a, as a poet. And he was, he's a master, you know, craftsman. And, and the craft of poetry is something I think is important to learn that was not taught to me, and this is a problem with a lot of modern, I think, uh, audiences of poetry, poets, it's, well, excuse me, young, young audiences of poetry, is that they'll, some teacher will teach them some poet that, that he or she really loves, like, you know, poets say, like, um, I love, say, James Dickey, and, but James Dickey, you know, his toolbox, poetry toolbox, it's, it's very limited. He, he doesn't use m most of the tools that were used for, you know, a thousand years writing poetry. He's, he's mostly built on sound. And um, um, and I just love his poetry, but it's hard to make a 15-year-old kid love his poetry because they, there's, they don't really know what to do with it. And no one taught me how to read poetry. And so that's, that's what kind of my, my goal is as a teacher when I get students in my class. I want them to learn how to read poetry. So I, I go back and teach them what I call sort of the classic poets, be it the Romantics, who are English Romantics or American Romantics, who are pretty simple to understand. Um, but they are very poetic. I mean, they're using all the tools in the toolbox, all rhetorical devices. They're using, uh, you know, careful meters and careful rhymes. And it's, it's very structured. Um, and I think that young students love to get that. They want to see what is poetry all about? I want to wonder what's what's the complicated thing about it because a free verse poem doesn't sound very impressive at all, does it? I mean, it, frankly, it just sounds like a prose piece that's been kind of elevated the way that somebody's reading it, you know, because they're because they're into it. So I, I feel like teaching poetry to young men, especially, the key for me has been to go back, teach them first how to read a standard classical poem, just. Give them the tools to do it. And at MBA, we do a great job of that from the seventh grade on up. Um, and then somewhere in there, about the 10th grade, I'd say they've been reading poetry for four or five years, kind of unpacking poems in kind of a rational way. Um, they hit a guy like Walt Whitman. And I don't know if you like Walt Whitman. Most, uh, it's, he's, he's someone that you know, some readers of poetry find to be just too exuberant. You know, too earnest. I'm not sure if that's, those are all fair things to say, but or just to assume. But um, that's the way I felt about it for a long time. I just didn't think he was a serious poet. But then I really read Song of Myself when I had to teach it. I had to teach it. Miss um, Lowry made us teach it. So I said, well, I'm going to teach it. I got to find a way to love it. Because if you don't love it, 
the students, they, they have a, a very sensitive meter, you know, <laughs> and if they sense a teacher doesn't like something, they're not even, they're not going to entertain it either. I, there's just no way they're going to do it. Even if they're a little rebellious, they're not going to rebel that direction. So I, I had to learn to love everything I taught by, by rethinking everything about that. I, all, all of the notions I had about some writers like Thoreau, for example, was another writer, though not a poet. I didn't like Thoreau very much. And, and then when I had to teach him, I said, okay, I'm going to hole up in my room for a couple of days and just devour, you know, Walden. Just gonna, I'm just going to force myself <laughs> to go through it. And halfway into it, I just realized it was this, you know, incredible book that was written to, to try to, you know, save you know, a part of civilization that was being lost to, you know, the industrial world. And I realized, wow, this is a, this is a prophet. And some poets are prophets and some aren't, right? Some poets are like a, a Yeats is a kind of prophet, but some of them are. Some of them are just more into being able to, uh, you know, create the world in words and by doing that um, uh, connect with people who, who see it the same way or feel it the same way. That's what a lot of modern poetry does for me is a lot of feeling and a lot of emotion. Um, most modern poetry is about the self. Um, it's not necessarily selfish. But it's uh, very confessional, you know, in nature. People, you know, investigating their emotions. That's something we're supposed to do now. Obviously, <laughs> that's that's a big part of of, of our of our uh, of our culture, and our poets reflect that as well. Um, so I'm I'm not so sure some, sometimes how well a poet um, like a, a Tennyson would do in the 21st century, who's not writing about himself, but he's writing more about. Um, British culture. So kind of going back to that idea of poetry as a puzzle, back when I was a full-time English teacher before I became a full-time school librarian, my favorite poet to study with high schoolers was John Donne, often because it was really kind of a quick and easy way to see how students could transition from a first reading of a poem and completely not getting it and just looking back up at me from the page being like, Miss McMahon, what was that about? <laughs> or why can't we read something that just makes sense? And, but as we would go through it and it, it only takes, you know, inside of a class period, you know, inside of one class meeting, you could see these students as we kind of parse it and pick through it and look at some of those devices and maybe, you know, kind of explain some of the vocabulary how they go from something that seemed completely unintelligible to them and half an hour later they're saying wow how did he do that or that's one of the coolest poems <laughs> we've read all year anyway so i always enjoyed looking at some of those holy sonnets of of john dunn with students so for you is there you mentioned walt whitman and a few other authors but is there either a favorite time period or maybe a specific poet that's your favorite that you're most excited to get to in the school year in your courses at mba oh that's an easy question that's an easy one for me it's, it's whitman i mean i hate to just sort of go back and not get back on the same train of thought but uh, i love to see i can I can just about teach anything now to my students at this time of the year or seven months in. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll buy into almost anything I want to teach them. And, and Whitman is, is, is one of the hardest for them. You know, it, it, it's in, it's the, the middle of the 19th century. So you've, we've studied some American literature up to that point, mostly the romantics, the dark romantics like Hawthorne and Poe. 
and we're and we've also read some of the poets as well, like Longfellow and these other very you know, the fireside poets they're called. The reason why I like Whitman so much is because Whitman really responds to history so well. So the boys are, are in, in American literature are also studying American history in the, in the tenth grade, and so uh, they're ready for Whitman because Whitman comes out comes right before the Civil War. It's eighteen fifty five. He comes out with Leaves of Grass, uh, with this tiny little book of poems that has one long poem in it called Song of Myself, fifty two sections, and uh, and in that, as I said earlier. Uh, he kind of blows up poetry. He takes the, 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 the tight English line, you know, which used to be four beats, and then they, then they got influenced by the French and became five beats, iambic pentameter of, you know, hundreds of years. And, you know, the British just perfected that line. I mean, you, you, <laughs> how many brilliant poets does the British culture produce, you know? Um, but Whitman comes along, and he can write like that as well. Um, and because he's an American, though, um, I, I think an American probably had to do this. And Whitman was uneducated. Uh, you know, of course, he was brilliant, you know, linguist, and, and he could read. But, you know, he didn't go beyond the fourth or fifth grade. But, but he learned how to write by typesetting. Uh, he was, a, lot of, a lot of writers in the 19th century learned to write by typesetting because, you know, the data processors of the 19th century, they were the ones setting the type to, you know, for printers. And talking about just an incredibly tedious job. But Whitman, as a young, probably he was 12 or 13, he helped to typeset the Old Testament and the, from the King James Bible. And so he would, would read these long, you know, um, Elizabethan sentences because I, the Bible was translated, um, the King James Bible obviously was translated, you know, in the early 17th century. Um, and he began to hear the rhythms of this old, this, this older time, the way the way people back then sort of wrote and and maybe even spoke, and um, and so he 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 took that and began to bring that into the poetic line, mixed with American isms, with American slang. This is why I like Whitman so much is that he is he's real. I mean, he, he he's walking the streets of New York, listening to people, taking their words, like words like I mean, so long, you know. We use that today all the time. So long, you know. That was a that was a slang word he heard, um, or he talks about like the chuff of his hand in one in one poem. And chuff chuff is not a word you're going to find in the dictionary, um, but the chuff of your hand is that part right you know the below, right below the palm of your hand right there where you might do work with pushing things. Um, and he walked the streets of, uh, of Brooklyn and the streets of Manhattan, just listening to people and watching them, and he fell in love with all kinds of people. You know, he fell in love with, um, you know, Native American peoples. He, he, he was, uh, um, he saw women in, in their domesticated lives and how they were, uh, uh, in many ways, just seemed to be enslaved. Um, he's, he saw uh, men hard at work, you know, in various ways on the streets and, and in the fields around, around New York as well. He, Whitman also took a long trip when he was a young man. Um, through the up the Hudson River into the Hudson River Valley, then over into the Ohio River Valley, then all the way to the Mississippi, and then he went down the Mississippi, and then he went to New Orleans, and he lived in New Orleans for a while, and he was just blown away by the variety of American culture, and no one was writing about that. People were just writing about heroes and wars, and they're writing about love, or writing about death, or writing about nature, you know, in a very, in a very. Um, 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 sort of panoramic way, the way the romantics wrote about nature, as if they're just looking at it through a window. Um, 
Uh, but not Whitman. When Whitman was out there and, and he was with people and he saw trappers marrying Native American women and he saw, uh, you know, he, ran, he obviously saw the slave trade and he got down to New Orleans and he saw this incredibly rich, you know, just sort of melting pot of culture down there. And when he came back in his early 30s to New York, he said, I'm going to write that. How do, you, how, do you, how do you write that into a poem? There, there was no form of, there was no form yet to be invented to, to, to be able to write about America. The novel maybe was, was starting to get there, but you know the novel in, 18, in the 1850s was not yet what it had become, um, the way we think of it today. So Whitman just had to invent this new way of writing. And so, the song of myself, he tries to capture Americans, and the hero of the poem is everybody in the country. That if you read the song of myself, they're hundreds and hundreds of, of narrators and different persona, you might say. And, um, and, and so we, no matter who you are reading this poem, you'll find yourself in there. And then if you find other people in there, you have no, no clue what their life is like, you get to, to read about them as well. And so he writes about the Underground Railroad. He writes about, um, you know, he writes about um, plantation owners. He writes about farmers. He writes about women who are again, sort of stuck in this sort of domestic world that they, he, could, he could tell even then that I think, you know, the gender roles were beginning to shift slowly. Um, so he wrote about everything. So it's so much fun to teach that, Jane, when um, an early part of the, the, the second semester. Um, the boys are ready for it in, the, in our English 2 class, and uh, they're ready to see how art really does reflect and reflect on um, and reflect just the culture around them. And it's just very real. Um, and it's easy to teach Whitman because I can bring in some stories from my own life that connect with the characters in the poem. Um, I can't really do that sometimes when I read. Like, like I love John Donne. I mean, he's a great poet. He is the perfect poet to teach a young person because you have to unpack Donne. And you have to read him like, like a riddle. You do have to read him like, a, like there's a problem to solve. Um, and then you feel the emotion that comes from all those all that but anyway um, um, you know I, I, I don't particularly you know necessarily always relate to a, 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 I think he was a, if I remember right he was an, an Anglican priest I might not connect with some of his his way of looking at you know the cosmos and the way it might see um, uh, from his strictly sort of Christian perspective although I'm a Christian um, Whitman though uh, he just connects with everybody I don't care who you are he, you're in you're in the poem and I think the boys like it a lot because it's it 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 kind of does defy some of that puzzle solving that they're used to seeing. Like when when, it, when I read a line of Whitman, they'll say, "What does that mean?" Mr. Mark's saying, "I'll say it means just what it says." <laughs> you know, you know, uh, you know. It's, it's it's not a it's not a trick. You know, um, you know. At the, the, at the end of the first section, he says he, he tells you how to read the poem in the first section of the poem. He's, the last four lines of section one go. Creeds and schools in advance, retiring back a while, suffice it what they are. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard. Nature without check with original energy. And, you know, there's just a lot of words, and there's nothing rhyming about it, right? And it's a little hard to memorize that because it doesn't, doesn't rhyme, but it's also in many ways kind of easy to remember because the rhythm is just incredible. It's the sprung rhythm nothing like this tie dynamic line that whenever you read a you know Shakespearean line or whatever you, you can just hear these 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 ams in the background um, 
kind of holding the, the line back. But all of a sudden in Whitman, he just comes out and he has these, this great line in the middle of the poem where he says, uh, he's describing Manhattan. He just, he just goes out once in a while in the poem and just describes what he hears and sees. That's it. There's like, it's just, just one image after another. And he says, the heavey-o of stevedores unlading ships by the wharves. It's just this, I mean, might not know what a stevedore is, but it's a, you know, it's a dock worker. And so you can hear these guys walking down, picking up these really heavy, you know, you know, cargo and heaving them onto the, um, you know, into the ships or off the ships or whatever. And it's what a gorgeous line, the heavey-o of stevedores unlading ships by the wharves. And, you know, you cannot write that line if you're Shakespeare because you, you can't say unlading. It's not iambic. Um, you can't say stevedores. It's hard to say as well because it's just not iambic. And so Whitman just kind of set the, set the world, well, set English poetry free from having to write like that. Now, Whitman could also write perfectly iambic lines. He wrote these brilliant Civil War poems full of rhyme, full of meter, um, because he was he was a the he was a, he saw himself as a national poet. He just he was he loved Abraham Lincoln. He was very patriotic, and uh, he, he thought the Civil War was an important war to be fought. But um, anyway, I, teaching the boys uh, Walt Whitman is is was hard when I first started because I didn't like Walt Whitman. Then I came to realize what he was doing, um, and it was a lot of fun to teach. And then uh, I realized that also by teaching Whitman. You had to let them, the boys write like Whitman, and then they really come to love poetry when they get a chance to imitate and mimic the writer. They really like that a lot. And Whitman is somebody they can imitate. They can really almost make a parody of them because he's immensely parodyable or whatever the word is. <laughs> he's a, he, he, he is a, a and that, I'm sure that's fun to do as well. So it kind of, Whitman kind of created the way I teach poetry because it allows me to let them learn a poet by writing like the poet. Um, and Dickinson was, is a close second to that because all the totally different poets, but asking them to write a Dickinson like poem, they can do that. Dickinson writes the same poem over and over and over almost 2000 times. Um, and, and, and so they can figure her out in about a week and at least her forms and imitate it humorously, comically or seriously. Um, but that became really that, that was a that was a there was a, a eureka light for me going on when I was teaching Whitman and, and Dickinson that to get them to really love poets, they have to be given a chance to write like them and write their own poems as well. You talked about some of the students learning to write in in the style of some of these poets like Dickinson or Whitman, and I think I think you did use the word kind of like epiphany or something like that, or eureka moment, I think you said. Yeah. So I'm curious, in the realm of poetry, whether it's in their studying, their reading, or their own composition, can you remember something connected to poetry where you observed a student really having a, a breakthrough, either an analytical breakthrough or a creative breakthrough, something that would be kind of like a poetic epiphany? I do. I think it happens all the time. It's probably why I stayed, you know, in the teaching profession. <laughs> it's been stayed with English. If I if I hadn't learned to, um, you know, love teaching English and, and, and seen results, I probably would have gone back to school and learned how to teach math. 
I seriously thought about being a math teacher at MBA. I actually, a long time ago, asked if I could teach some math classes. But anyway, um, I've, um, I think you know it happens more in my in my classes, James, when I ask them to write. Uh, when I see them, them have their own sort of epiphanies and their own realizations of their of their um, their connections to poetry, because I, I I tell them this all over and over that. You know, one of the, one of the most important parts of being a human being. I mean, I think first of all, storytelling is at the core of, of being. I think a human being. I think we can do without a lot of things, um, but we can't do without stories. I mean, I, I think you see that right now in this in this plague we're going through. Is that the second everybody got isolated, and we couldn't just go out and distract ourselves. You know, with all the stuff we distract ourselves with. Next thing you know, people wanted to start telling stories. People wanted to start recording. I see. I, I go on YouTube and see these people playing music now all the time. Who, who's you know, love to play music, and but they don't ever play for anybody. But now they feel the need to play for somebody, or they're they're reading aloud, you know, on YouTube and you know, and sharing it or whatever. And you, I see these different you know, Zoom recordings of somebody doing a reading or whatever. You can just sense that storytelling is at the heart of being a human being. We just we, we, we crave stories, even if it's a Netflix binge watched whatever series. Um, but I also think poetry is something that, that you know gives us our uh, our bearings, you know, as well. Because some some poetry is highly moral, and some poetry is is uh, highly emotional, whatever. But I, I do think that uh, that I have kind of few moments in class when when students are reading a poem when they feel really good about getting it. But that does happen though. I mean, it does happen when a kid reads a poem and goes, hey, I understood that poem. You know, like, wow, I, I, I get, you know, and that's probably why Robert Frost is so popular. People can understand. The boys can understand. Um, um, and, and they do enjoy, you know, learning and unpacking a line that they didn't understand and watching me do it and try to urge them to see the patterns or whatever that maybe they missed when they were reading it. Or they just haven't seen yet. This isn't the right word. Um, but... So that happens when they read a poem. I mean, when they're reading, you know, um, especially a modern poem that are really hard to unpack, some of these free verse poems from the 1930s and 40s or whatever, or a really difficult poem, but like like a T.S. Eliot poem, poems that were meant to be difficult in order to get people to go educate themselves again. Those poems, sometimes they can have a eureka with that. But I find that the most successful thing to do as a teacher is to get them to write poems, to write their own poems. You don't have to do it every week. Don't have to do it every day. If you did it every day, every week, they would they would get tired of it. Um, some of the board wouldn't, but most of them would. So um, I, I have my class set up. About every four weeks, we have a poetry day, and I come in and pitch them some prompts, and we go outside and write together, or we stay in the room if it's too cold or wet, and we'll write together, and we'll do a twenty-minute fast write, kind of a free association thing, and just digging out and creating and finding images. Uh, to write about a poem, and then and then uh, um, and then turn them loose to write something. And it, you know, half the guys are going to write poems that rhyme, and half of them are going to go free verse. Um, and it's from there when we when we read them aloud. This is something that's important too. I, I have a special poetry lamp. I turn off all the lights in my classroom. I break out the poetry lamp, and I have a poetry chair. I got an old rocking chair. I put that out up front with my poetry lamp. Turn off the lights, and we. And we read our they read our poems to each other. The first time they do this, they're very self conscious. Um, that's in September, and I, and I don't make boys read if they don't want to read. But the second time, they're into it. 
and they all want to read. And uh, in fact, I'm having one of these poetry, um, I call it a virtual poetry cafe tomorrow because they, they turn in their papers, their themes on Thursday. That's usually a good time to get them to do something creative is the day after a theme. Their brain has kind of been very logical writing a, you know, an essay that's got all of this train of thought that they've got to build. And the next day you come in and say, hey, let's, let's blow that up and let's write something that doesn't have a train of thought at all, unless you want to write a poem that does that. Um, and I have, I have tremendous success with this. I have tremendous success with this. The, um, 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 you know, boys who don't think they can write anything of any interest, all of a sudden they'll write one really beautiful, fascinating line and we'll, 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 we'll congratulate him on it and say, Hey, take that and start a new poem with that line and see where it goes. And uh, they're just all budding poets. They just want to write it after a while, most of them. Um, if you don't do it, if you don't do it enough, they get a little cynical about it. They just, you know, they seem, they, it seems like playtime to them. But if they do it for, you know, once a month, they like it. They get into it a lot. Um, so I think that's, for me as a teacher, my one of the epiphanies I had was to, was to make sure they are writing poetry too, not just writing about poetry. That they are being the poets themselves, and that's why writers like Whitman are great. Because Whitman says, you know, that's his point. Everybody's a poet. We're all poets, and, and I'm sure some are better than others. But anyway, you know, it does not doesn't it doesn't matter if you're any good at it or not. It's it's more of a it's just a human. It's a it's a, it's a natural human um, you know response to the world is to write something in an elevated way. That you can remember it, and you'll want to you'll want to remember it, you know, as opposed to just simply using language as a communication tool. Well, this has been completely fascinating, and I think anyone listening now has at least a sense of why our students at MBA are so lucky to benefit from everything our English department has to offer. Thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts and memories with us, Mr. Moxley. Well, thanks for having. This has been fun. I've been doing this a long time, so I, I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Not every year was a successful year, but I have figured out a few things about teaching boys, at least. And um, and uh, some teachers don't, don't like to teach poetry to boys. I find it to be the easiest thing for me to do and the, really the most successful and the most enjoyable thing. So I'm so glad you're doing this series, and uh, I hope you get to talk to some other teachers as well. I know all of our teachers... I think just do a great job at, at, at this. And years ago when I first started this uh, as the chair of the English department, I read a book by Nicholson Baker called The Anthologist. And um, it became the, the book that I give to every teacher that comes to MBA. I said, this is a book that shows you how to teach poetry called The Anthologist, Nicholson Baker. I'm plugging that book for anybody who's interested in, in uh, how to think about poetry. We hope you've been enjoying this poetry-themed episode of Here on the Hill. Before we close with a poem by current student Roman Urbanzik, a quick reminder that you can find more information about our school, including upcoming admissions events, at montgomerybell.edu. You can also contact our podcast team at here on the hill podcast at montgomerybell.edu. That's here with an E-A-R. And now, the original poem, The Dead Man's Dictionary, 
by Roman Urbanzik. Thank you for listening. The Dead Man's Dictionary. Persistence. I see how humanity has been given the chance to test theirs alone. Time is feeding humanity a spoonful of the isolation of death. Intelligence. Mankind tripping on its own facades and fallacies while maintaining a strong belief in them. Not knowing. Avoided by deceiving oneself into believing fallacies. Isolation. The fear of not knowing who will go next. Do not deceive yourself. What fear drags you out of bed each day into a fallen world of pain? And what, when the time comes, will eternally pin you down? We hope you've been enjoying this poetry-themed episode of Here on the Hill. Before we close with a poem by current student Roman Urbanzik, a quick reminder that you can find more information about our school, including upcoming admissions events, at montgomerybell.edu. You can also contact our podcast team at hereonthehillpodcast at montgomerybell.edu. That's here with an E-A-R. And now, the original poem, The Dead Man's Dictionary by Roman Urbanzik. Thank you for listening.